everybody. Happy Friday. It's Brandon Busteed. Thanks for joining me for the second LinkedIn Live edition of Bold Leaders in Learning. And I'm delighted today to have uh, one of my good colleagues, Dr. Alvin Basaria, here with me. He's the Vice President of iHuman Patients and Healthcare Innovation at Kaplan. And Alvin happens to be one of the most popular guys around these days because of the work that uh, he's leading at iHuman Patients. So, Delighted to, to have you here, Alvin. Thanks for carving out the time on a Friday. And I, I would love to just start with uh, the basics. Tell us a little bit about your background uh, and how you got into this work. And then, you know, tell folks about iHuman Patients. We're going we're gonna to talk a little bit about it uh, as part of this session today, but I think it's important for, for everybody to be kind of grounded in what the heck it is that, that we're discussing. So um, in any event, uh, we'd love to hear a little bit more about you. Well, thanks very much, Brandon, and, and thanks for having me on your live stream here. Uh, yeah, I've been in healthcare and education in one sh way, shape, or form for about 15 years now. My background is as a physician. I trained as a physician at uh, Northwestern. Uh, spent a number of years working in the hospital and pharmaceutical industry with McKinsey. Uh, and throughout, though, was spending time in, in education, the education practice there, as well as in a number of ed and ed tech companies since then. And I've been with Kaplan for five years and, and leading uh, iHuman for the last year or so. Um, and, and again, I'm, I'm really pleased to be here because it, it is a moment for uh, our company, our division of Kaplan. Uh, iHuman has been in the business of virtual patient simulation, and I'll define that in a moment, for about eight years. So you, you could say that we've been preparing for this moment for the better part of a decade. Uh, what, what is virtual patient simulation? We, simulation, I think, has a lot of connotation. Uh, the easiest way to think about what we do, uh, is, it's a brute force analogy, is, is as a flight simulator. So just as pilots uh, get into flight simulations that are highly realistic and allow them to fly very sophisticated pieces of machinery, uh, doctors and nurses need simulation of all kinds so that they can practice safely prior to actually performing on a patient. iHuman's niche within that world is simulating the cognitive processes behind the clinical and diagnostic steps it takes to actually solve for what a patient is going through and treat them. So it's a simulation of the mind, uh, enhanced through our online platform, uh, which, which we'll show you in a minute. And I actually think that's the best way to experience what this is, we, we recently created a case. That's how we think of our, our business. Uh, we have over 300 cases, uh, each of which represents a different uh, diagnostic scenario. And we really recently created one, as you might expect, for coronavirus, a COVID-19 case. And uh, what you're going to see in this clip that we'll show you here is uh, introduction to case play. And one of our, our lead uh, content creator, our Vice President uh, of Content and uh, Medical Creation, Dr. Judy Kalanyak, who uh, has 20 years at UCSF and Stanford that she brings to our, um, our team. Um, and she leads a group of students through the beginning of that case. And this is a short 30 second clip of that. So if we could see that now, um, that would be a good way to show you what we mean by simulation. I'm Dr. Kalanyak at iHuman Patients by Kaplan, and today we're going to try to diagnose Mark Webb. 
does he have influenza? Does yeah, he have COVID-19? We're introducing the patient so just the like you might in a, in a real world scenario. Um, right and I'll let the clip play here so that you can see how uh, the avatar pops up. Uh, and there's some interaction with the students. We have to make a diagnosis. Is it a slam dunk? It would be unusual to have... One of the things you'll notice is that there, there's uh, not only an avatar that you can interact with, you can you can speak to the avatar, uh, ask it questions, but you're asked to perform, again, the cognitive processes, listing out the problems that the patient is talking about um, and starting to formulate what's called the differential. What are the list of things that could possibly be wrong? In this particular case, what we have done is set up a quandary that is facing millions of healthcare professionals today. Is it flu or is it coronavirus? The treatment paths are really, really different. But more than that, the safety of not just that patient, but numerous lives are at stake. If it is coronavirus, you have to make some decisions about where you are going to triage that patient to. If it's flu, it's a whole different scenario. So that's what these medical students went through to um, distinguish between the two and then come up with the right uh, diagnostic and treatment procedure. The other thing I'd want to point out with this simulation is, is, is that uh, it's up to date. So why, why is that important? Many diseases are stable over time, over thousands of years. Anatomy is stable over thousands of years. Here is a great example of where it is virtually impossible to train somebody in the clinic on this problem right. without the assistance of a virtual scenario. You, that person won't be as effective because you actually don't have the knowledge to do it. It's not out there yet. In a virtual simulation, you can build in that knowledge very, very quickly, get that person the practice that they need so that they can come in and be effective with patients. Yeah, I, I, that's a really good example. I mean, obviously, there it's, it's apparent that something like iHuman Patients has a lot of value when everything is shut down out there right now, right? There, there are no clinical rotations happening, right? In the absence of that, uh, what do you do, right? This is obviously, a, you know, filling a huge void to allow, you know, medical training on many fronts to move forward. But even in the absence of a COVID disruption, right, in terms of physically being shut down, you've got something new that has developed in the, you know, the medical realm. And, you know, this is where virtual simulation really comes to the forefront as one of the quickest and most effective ways to kind of deploy to the front, if you will. I was on that webinar, by the way, where they did the, the COVID-19 demonstration. I was thinking to myself, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of House, uh, the, you know, the, the series. And uh, I was like, man, I, I can be House. I can play Dr. House here and uh, make my own differential uh, diagnosis. So, um, so tell me a little bit about how this is playing out. I mean, I, I, I know it's being applied in you know, nursing training, physician's assistants for doctors, Give me a sense of, um, you know, what was happening before the COVID disruption, because obviously you guys have been at this for a while. And then tell me what has what has really changed beyond the obvious with uh, with what's happening right now during this disruption. Sure. So so what was happening before was that there was a lot of interest being generated in virtual simulation really anyway, for a lot of the same reasons. Most of simulation as it's known today is known as mannequin based simulation or sim lab based simulation where you actually have a, a physical uh, mannequin that you can manipulate and, and learn various procedures, learn some of the thinking on. But virtual simulation was coming to the fore over, over the last year or so, especially in undergraduate nursing, but across uh, all of 
the uh, the main areas that you mentioned because the power of being able to uh, develop and get people that deliberate practice that we know learning science points us to. So the ten thousand hour rule, as 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 we know now, has has some nuance to it. And virtual simulation was playing into this pre-COVID. So what what do I mean by that? When you talk about ten thousand hours and getting those reps, the way that that happens today is generally some form of preclinical education that sets you up for that deliberate practice. And then you go into, as you mentioned, a hospital or non-acute care setting, and you start building those reps. You start seeing patients and so forth. And, and in some ways, there's no better way to do that. In some ways, though, we know that standardized patients, patient actors, uh, are very, very helpful. They help get you more reps in a safe manner, safe for the patients and safe for you. So yep. this is all pre-COVID. But what virtual simulation does is actually make that process a lot more efficient and strategic. So what do we mean by that? Efficiency comes because you can get what's called uh, the deliberate practice done, the practice that's focused with appropriate feedback. And this is what you see with every athlete, you know, Tiger Woods and Earl Woods and, you know, the the Eastern block with with tennis players and, and pick your Pick your um, your discipline. Uh, violinist at the at the Boston Philharmonic. Every every as, every uh, genre or every discipline shows that if you have that deliberate practice with the feedback from an expert, right, that's what counts. And so virtual simulation provides that in spades. The other piece about strategic, though, is when you go into the hospital, it's kind of catch as catch can. Today there may be. 12 patients with uh, pulmonary edema. Tomorrow there may be 12 with heart attacks. Uh, you have an uneven experience. Virtual simulation pre-COVID was already filling the gaps. So now shift here to, to post-COVID uh, and what's different than the obvious, as you said. Safety becomes a much, much bigger deal. Yep. Not only for the patients, you want people to have the, the, the general medical practice in, in medical school, and this is slightly different in, in nursing, is, is uh, and this is a provocative statement, but it's see one, do one, teach one. Not until you teach are you really able to lock that in. Now, what do you do when you, one, can't teach because you don't know, and two, teaching becomes dangerous to especially the novice folks, our junior yep. medical students, our junior nursing students. It's as if, you know, to use a war metaphor, you skip basic training and send the soldiers out to the, to the, to the war. Nobody ever does that. Even, even in wartime, we never do that. Um, and here, if you, if you do that, you're literally putting patients' lives at risk and the medical providers' lives at risk. So that deliberate practice, the value of that increases exponentially in a situation like this. So that's the pre and the post. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, you know, I have to wonder too, right? Everybody's trying to think through, you know, as a result of this disruption, right? What does, what does it look like, you know, the new norm or whatever we want to call it? I mean, obviously, I think most of us have recognized that we're not going to go back in most things to the exact norm that was before this, right? There's going to be some modification for either a period of time or indefinitely, right? Like is business travel really going to return fully ever again? I mean, right. really good questions to wrestle with. So, as you kind of forecast out in front, uh, you know, through, you know, the, the major part of this disruption, you know, 18 months, 24 months from now, you know, we've got a vaccine, let's say, and we've largely figured out how to uh, moderate the effects of this. Um, what do you think happens with virtual simulation? Like, I'm curious about other things, too, like licensing boards and standards, right? Are, is there conversation about a shift there from, 
the percentage of time that has to be required in clinical rotations versus simulations. Just tell me a little bit about your, say, 18-month to 24-month forecast out in front. Yeah. Uh, so 18 to 24 months. Let, let's, let's start with the, the last point you made in accreditation boards and, and licensing boards. And, and uh, as, as we know and we see, and I think most of, most of us, if we, if we think about it for a little bit, we would agree that medicine moves slow and it really should move slow. We, we don't want to, and we'll take, you know, we can look at the hydroxychloroquinolone, uh, you know, impact right now. You know, we've, we've done more studies now. We've seen what the impact is. It takes time for medicine to evolve, and it should because patients' lives are, at, at, are being impacted. That said, a moment like this forces innovation. And licensing board and accrediting boards have now gone out and said, Virtual simulation has a role to play, probably larger than we actually acknowledged in the past. That's really important because we need people who have uh, the, the deliberate thought process to ask and answer the question, is this safe? Is this effective? Even when it comes to an educational tool to be answering those questions, and they are. But that's, that's tied to the 18 to 24 month view. In a world where there is a vaccine and uh, there, there is a... Um, recession of the, the threat of coronavirus, what we're seeing factually is that certainly for the next six to 12 months, deans, faculty, uh, students are, are conservative about the future. They feel they will need to have this as at least a backup, if not a frontline solution because right. of the possibility of recurrence. Long term, because this modality is getting so much exposure, I don't think there is any going back. Now that you know that you can actually use this tool, at least as an adjunct and perhaps as a frontline educational tool, uh, we see ourselves and, and, and others who are providing this service as, as mainstays of the educational format in the future. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting. You know this well, right? But the other, the other big discussion that's raging across higher ed and K-12 is this one of the fact that in the last two months, essentially a a billion students across the planet were thrust into hastily, you know, made ad hoc distance learning solutions. I don't even want to call them online because I've got a third and a fourth grader here and it basically involves printing out worksheets on my printer. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, that's what, that's what distance learning is. So, but, but, you know, and, and so some folks have said, wow, you know, this exposure to hastily poorly done, you know, kind of uh, bubble gum, you know, and, and duct tape uh, solutions is going to turn people off from online education. There's the other group who's saying, well, no, actually, it's going to improve the familiarity with it, even though a lot of people are going to have disproportionately poor experiences. But like, when I look at something like iHuman Patients, which is on the absolute cutting edge of this, right, realizing the sophistication of the technology, how real it is, how adaptive it is, right? My thesis is that we're going to see people who are exposed during this time to world-class online education and simulation mm -hmm. and really poorly done stuff. Mm -hmm. And then it, there's going to be conversation like, well, what do you mean that was that bad? Because I did something over here that was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. I'm just curious, like, I, I, you know, I'm giving you a bit of a question that you're biased towards because of your role. But right. tell me how you think that's going to play out, this confluence of really bad experiences and what I would call world-class experience with online. Yeah, I, I, I think, as you're saying, it it's really depends upon the segments and, the, and the, the job to be done, if you will, to take from some from Clayton Christensen. I mean, I, too, have a 7- a and 10-year-old who 
I'm having to print out worksheets for, and, and there's various kinds of suggestions to use yeah. online uh, pieces, but it's very fragmented. Uh, I think the thing that, as you said, we're biased, but the thing that we come to this moment with is, is almost, again, a decade of thinking about how to do this well. And I think that's the, the, the challenge that a lot of people are facing is that they haven't had that moment. They haven't had that, that, that need. We saw a need almost a decade ago and, and have been attacking it ever since. And so like anything else, when you, when you get, we, you know, we have, we have engineers in Silicon Valley in, uh, we have top clinicians from uh, across the country that when you have that kind of uh, mind power working at a single problem for this long, I think you're going to see uh, the kind of solution that really works. Furthermore, uh, I think when you have this many people using uh, things like simulation, and this is happening in the, uh, the athletics fitness world as well, this is happening in, in, in other areas, I think you're going to see more innovation and innovators drawn to it, like Kaplan, and, and investing to accelerate that even further. So where, where, where there's fragmentation and, and maybe not a head start like we have, I think you're going to see the, the, the impact that you and I are seeing as parents, parents slash teachers, right. yeah. schooling perhaps without, without yeah. the uh, intent to do that. Uh, but, but in the medical world, I think this is going to draw investment, innovation, mind share, uh, and, and you're seeing it already. Yeah, it, it's for sure. I mean, it, it, it reminds me too of what I, some of the other things that I've learned across the, you know, the Kaplan work uh, with, with test prep, right? You know, most people know Kaplan as, as test prep. That was our historical, you know, founding base and mission. And, uh, you know, I was just surprised. I mean, not, you know, not shocked, but surprised to learn that, you know, our live online test prep courses, uh, a the majority of our students are now in live online test prep, even though mm -hmm. they at least pre-COVID, had the choice between classroom, you know, live classroom and live online. And then the, the more interesting part is that uh, in addition to most of the market choosing online over classroom, the, uh, the net promoter scores of the live online test prep students are higher. And you go, well, well how can that be? And then when you start to understand the, the elements that underpin it, it makes sense because we're able to put our absolute best rock star test prep instructors in front of more students. Mm -hmm. And then the way the technology is set up is if students have questions, they can go into side chat rooms and have one-on-one -on -one discussions with a tutor or TA, right? So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's arguably more personal than a classroom-based session. And, uh, and the odds are, although all of our instructors are very, very good at what they do, the odds are you've got your absolute, you know, rock stars in front of more students. So, right. um, you know, these are examples where I actually believe in some respects the, the online applications, the simulations are actually better purpose, right? I would never call it a replacement, but, you know, that, that I have a lot of hope around. And, um, you know, in general, uh, I, I think there's just going to be, you know, not just the immediate need because of temporary shutdowns, but then the recognition, just like business travel. One mm -hmm. of the things I've come to realize, I, I averaged about 175 flight segments a year for the past 15, 20 years. I'm always on airplanes. I don't know that I'll get back to half of that ever again because everybody has become much more accepting of exactly what you and I are doing here, right? We're having right. a video Zoom call that I really need to physically fly to campus. In some cases, that will make a big difference. But, you know, I think 50% of the cases where I actually physically went somewhere, mm -hmm. if I question it, like, could I do it another way? I'm going to go, yeah, I could do it from home on Zoom. <laughs> so right. Um, right. what else do you see in the 
you know, in the medical landscape specifically, right? Uh, you're, you're interacting with a lot of uh, a lot of folks in the field, a lot of medical institutions. Mm-hmm. What else is what else is happening in the landscape that you think is uh, promising for the future? Well, in terms of uh, medical education, I think you know, virtual is just one one way to go at it. We, we're, I think we could see further innovation in in virtual simulation. Of of course, I mean, there's also virtual reality, augmented reality, etc. And, and those are all frontiers that, that are there. We're also seeing a lot of changes uh, in, in testing, as, as, as you mentioned. You know, we, we're, we're seeing that uh, just like the SAT and ACT have looked at going fully uh, online with proctored exams, I mean, schools are forced to do that. And, and, and then how do you do that with an anatomy exam? I, I heard an anecdote of a, of a local school here in Chicago that set up their anatomy final in the parking lot uh, with um, face mask and, and hazmat and, and the students couldn't leave their cars. Now that could work for some folks, but that's I serious. Think, yeah. Yeah. I, I think that, you know, there's, there's another ripe for innovation problem. How do you, how do you test? And that they need to be high stakes tests, right? These are the folks that are going to get, take care of our grandparents, our parents, ourselves, our children. Uh, and, and we don't have that at scale yet. And you know we don't we don't we don't really have a scale solution. I think these are things that Kaplan are looking at as well. Um, so uh, testing also, I think we we know that the USMLE has decided to go pass fail. And what does what does that mean about the, the future as well? Are there other ways that medical students are going to have to and and nursing as well uh, with the next gen NCLEX? Are they going to have to? Is there whole way of doing education going to be different? And is there room for uh, online uh, education to enhance that, distance learning to enhance that? Absolutely. Uh, you know, giving people different experiences, et cetera. Uh, so there's a lot of innovation and fields uh, or change in the field that's happening right now that are that are independent of coronavirus. And I think, it, right. and like a lot of thought leaders have said, it's being accelerated by coronavirus, not, not really fundamentally changing what was happening already. Yeah. It's interesting. For those of you who are just tuning in, uh, we're, we're talking with Dr. Alvin Vasaria, Vice President of iHuman Patients and, and Head of uh, Healthcare Innovation at Kaplan. And we've been talking a lot about uh, what they've been doing, their work in uh, medical simulation. And, you know, we're also segueing to, you know, what, uh, you know, what, what things do we see on the horizon? You know, maybe let's just kind of broaden uh, the discussion for the last few minutes here, Alvin. Um, Look, a lot, lot of prognostication around what the future of higher education looks like. Uh, we know, for example, a lot of higher ed institutions have massive medical establishments uh, attached to them, right? We know that there aren't a lot of, uh, well, in fact, in most states, there are no, um, you know, surgeries being done outside of, you know, treating COVID-19 patients and trying to cope with the, the strain on the system. So there's a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of hospitals and medical centers that are struggling during this time. You know, I'm, I'm curious, what's your prediction in terms of how hard uh, we get hit at the higher ed level and at the, you know, the hospital level? You know, are we, are we really going to see um, a mass extinction of higher ed institutions? Are we, are we going to see the similar collapse of actually having fewer hospital beds available in the future? I just, I would love your input on that stuff, even though I know I'm, you know, pushing you beyond your, your specific uh, zone of expertise, but with your broad understanding of, uh, of higher ed and the healthcare industry, I'm curious what your thoughts are. So, so a couple of, of thoughts on, on higher ed when it comes to medical schools and, and, and nursing schools uh, for the future. 
Uh, and I'll tie that into to hospital beds. So we, we, one thing we see, broadly speaking, is a shift from acute care to non-acute settings uh, in general. Uh, we, we know that, that hospital care is expensive. Um, and so now there's higher QD patients that go into the hospital, and we've seen a shift to be able to take care of as many as possible outside of the hospital. This, this would obviously accelerate that. If, if you can take care of this thing outside of a hospital setting, that's better for every stakeholder in the system. Right. So how does that impact uh, medical school, nursing school, et cetera? Uh, I think what you'll see from a curriculum perspective, and, and I know we're talking bigger than this, but telemedicine has to be a part of this. Rural yep. healthcare has to be a part of this. Uh, can you do things like remote dermatology? Can you do things like remote surgery? It's much more obvious with things like radiology and so forth, right? So, but that shift to what can be remote has now a epidemiological engine behind it that was, again, already moving. So what would this mean for medical school and nursing school? You know, when you look at, and you were touching on this, what I would call is the pelotonization of, of faculty, uh, star faculty being able to teach at scale uh, is, is something that Peloton and others do well. Now, do people believe that in higher ed? Well, let's look at this. We can, we, can look at, we can look at Coursera. We can look at other players in the field. We can look at MIT and edX and, and so forth. What I think we can see with medical schools, it's a lot more tangible. And you can see this on forums like Reddit and so forth is, okay, the basic science, the, the kind of basic construct of, of preclinical basic sciences, postclinical in the wards, can that be scaled out? Is, is there a, a way to take uh, the top folks, and I know Andy and yourself talk about this, and kind of combine the education with some kind of uh, actual uh, industry-recognized way of, of, of looking at this? I, and I think there is, there is opportunity for that. Let's take this to an extreme, and this is something that people this is just thought thinking out loud, um, from, but from places that we've seen other competitors go in. Is there a global medical school that does the top first two years online? Right. Is that possible? I, I think it's more possible now. It's more within, you know, people often say, you know, there's things like this are when you don't anticipate them, it's a failure of imagination. Yeah. It, so, yeah. so that, that th th there's, there's extremes that I think are more real now than more than ever. No, I think you're right. No one would have ever considered the possibility of that. Now I think it's definitely in the realm of, of consideration. And, uh, you know, I've been having a lot of conversations with higher ed leaders who, you know, they've, they've, you know, you use a lot of analogies here or, or, you know, taking the gloves off, right? Like there aren't any sacred cows anymore, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and, and considering, Hey, you know, should we have an online bachelor's degree? Many have gone and, and developed online master's degrees, but what about an online bachelor's degree for traditional age students? And then mm -hmm. what was the student experience design around that? Because I know one of the other things we've learned a lot of lessons about is it's, it's, uh, you know, I think about this in the apprenticeship training work that we do in the UK you know, we have uh, essentially what we call technical tutors, the teachers who teach you the technical skill sets that you need mm -hmm. to learn in a field. And then we have talent coaches who are really the people that are doing the, you know, the soft skill development with these individuals. And so, you know, there, there's a lot of different ways to think about uh, breaking up teaching as well. You know, I always thought about it through the lens of you've got a, a world-renowned expert, right, who's a tenured faculty member who is absolutely the top expert in their field but they're not passionate about classroom teaching, right? Or, or it's just not something that they want to spend a lot of their time doing. You know, why haven't we had more examples, even in the classroom, of partnering a subject matter expert with somebody who 
really just wants to focus on, you know, the art of teaching and the science of teaching, right? And combining those, you know, in this case, two different individuals with different talents. But I think that's also where, you know, we start to see more innovation in the models, right? What would a first couple of years of online medical school look like? I'm reminded of one of my uh, my friends, their, their daughter just started medical school and she was talking about the lectures that they have on Fridays. And she said, well, a third of the class doesn't show up, you know, a third attends and uh, and the other third basically either does one of two things. They go home and they watch the video on tw- on two speed. So they speed it up. And then there's the group that actually slows it down, replays the video. You know, so it's like you got the group that talk faster, talk faster, talk right. faster. Right. Uh, some don't want to even show up in class. Some do. And I just think it starts to tell you there's a lot of different learners, too, who mm-hmm. have different preferences with this. And, right. and as we have more comfort with some of these new modalities, I just think. I'm encouraged. I think there's going to be an awful lot of innovation. There already has, but I think now a lot of the resistance points to it have been, you know, brought down considerably and we'll continue to see some crappy stuff out there for sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the innovation I think is really going to raise the bar and the visibility of that is going to force everybody to, you know, a higher degree of excellence around it. So, um, you know, I want to thank you for your time today. Thank you for your leadership in this incredibly innovative field. And I know right now, uh, you know, you you couldn't have a bigger mission, Alvin, you and your team uh, helping all the medical professionals uh, to be to be the best that they can. And, you know, look, one of the things that, that could come from this, too, is uh, as a resurgence in interest in uh, the fields of nursing and then you know, medicine more generally. So uh, I'm curious, do you think we'll do we'll we'll see a a surge in interest in, in fields in the medical field as a result of this pandemic? I think uh, disease hunting and epidemiology will be part of the top, top three, top five. And, you know, and I think infectious disease overall has not been something that people have thought about, even in medicine. I mean, it's, it's, it's thought of as an anachronism, you know, because there's the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. And of course there's Ebola, but it's all over there or in the past. I don't think that's going to be the case in the future. Yeah. Yeah. You wonder, you know, data science has been the hottest job in the U.S. for the last three years. And you wonder if we might start to see epidemiology and virology and a whole Mm -hmm. bunch of other things come up on that list. But, uh, you know, anyway, good to end on a hopeful note, especially Mm -hmm. on a Friday. Uh, And we haven't talked about it yet, but I'm curious if you've done your uh, CrossFit wad yet today or that's still on your... I have not. That's coming (laughs) later later today. Thanks for asking. All right. That's good. (laughs) Yeah. For for those of you into CrossFit, Alvin is is a diehard and uh, he and I share a lot of of CrossFit stories. So Alvin, thank you very much for the time today. Really appreciated having you. Thanks, Brandon. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you.